Well, if you have your Bible with you, let me invite you to turn with us to 2 Kings chapter 23. 2 Kings chapter 23. <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 23. I want to begin to read verse 4. And we're just going to read a few verses here this morning. Uh, for those of you joining us here, uh, we are glad you're here. We have been working our way through the book of First and Second Kings for many months now. And we are coming towards the end of Second Kings. And we've been looking at the reign of King Josiah. And uh, we've been in Josiah here for... A few weeks, and so we're going to continue. I'll give you just a just a brief introduction and look at these next few verses. So let's pray together, and then I want us to read verses 4 through 7. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you for King Josiah, his love, his zeal, his faith in you. We thank you for his example. Thank you for his commitment. Thank you that he points us to Jesus who was even more faithful than Josiah. We pray, Lord, that we would look to Jesus as our great king. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read together 2 Kings 23, beginning at verse 4. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and he carried their ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, and to the moon, and to the constellations, and to all the host of heaven. He brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook Kidron, and ground it to dust, and threw its dust on the graves of the common people." He also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes, which were in the house of the Lord, where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. Amen. Well, we have been looking at Josiah's reign. Josiah, uh, remember, boys and girls, Josiah is one of the good guys, okay? Uh, you guys know that by now, right? Right, kids? Josiah is one of the good kings. He is a king who put his trust at an early age in the Lord. One of the reasons you young people should admire Josiah was that Josiah, uh, we are told, sought the Lord at an early age. Now, by the time he was 16 years old, he was beginning earnestly to uh, seek God and eventually orders the cleansing of the temple. The temple had been defiled with all kinds of idolatry. And so the first thing that Josiah wants to do is clear all that out. 
Now that should remind you of somebody else. You remember another king who came into his temple and began to chase out the money changers and all the animals with a cord that he had made, driving them out. And they said, you know, who are you? By what authority are you doing these things? So Josiah is a a type of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. So as they're cleaning out the temple, one of the things that they discover is God's word, the Bible. Now, as I said before, there's a theory, and I don't think it's necessarily a bad theory, that the reason that the scriptures were hidden was actually was to protect the scriptures, that the scriptures had been hidden in the temple because who do we read of in these verses that we read this morning? Who's, in, who's controlling the temple at this point? Well, the prophets and the priests of Baal are in there, and, and, the, and those who serve the gods of the Sidonians and others are in there. So it's a, it's a reasonable theory, uh, but it's not explicit in the Bible. But for whatever reason, the scriptures were missing. They find the scriptures and they bring them to the king. They read them in Josiah's presence. And Josiah's heart is softened under the reading of the scriptures. And he tears his garments or rends his garments, which was a sign of mourning and distress. Whenever you read about people rending their garments, remember that that is a sign of having been convicted. But remember that the Lord says that he wants rent hearts, okay? Not just rent clothes, but he wants us to have a rent heart. He will not despise. So Josiah does that and he seeks the word of the Lord. And he goes and he sends his men, a delegation of his people to a prophetess. And she, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks the word of the Lord to Josiah and tells him that because of the sins of Manasseh and of Ammon, his dad, that God is indeed going to bring a great and terrible judgment upon Jerusalem. Remember, Manasseh shed blood throughout the city, we're told. However, because Josiah humbled himself, God was not going to bring this judgment so long as he was king. This would come later. Now, we might expect, as I said last week, to think that Josiah would rest upon his laurels and say, that's great, I've been promised by God, no judgment in my day, let's take our ease. But no, what does Josiah do? Josiah doubles down. And, you know, and he may have been thinking, who knows, maybe God will even relent of that judgment that he has promised that will come after me. Works you know, worked for the people of Nineveh, didn't it? You know, Jonah preached, I'm going to bring judgment upon this place. And what happened? Well, the people repented and God relented. So it could happen. So what does he do? He enters into a public covenant with the Lord. He publicly gathers all people, great and small, to the temple. And there, standing by the pillar, which was the place where the king would have stood in the temple, He swears before the people and in the presence of God that he will own the covenant that has been read in their hearing. They have this great reading of the covenant, the reading of the Bible to all the people. The people hear the word of God being read in this service. And then after the word has been read, Josiah swears before the Lord that he will enter into this covenant faithfully and that God will judge him according to what he has promised. And then we are told... And after the king enters into that covenant, the last thing we saw last week in verse 3 was that, and all the people entered into the covenant. 
that they too swore before God. This is what we call a covenant renewal ceremony. This is why your Presbyterian forefathers, particularly in Scotland, would periodically have in times of awakening these covenant renewal services where people would literally sign a document where they were pledging themselves in their household to be the people of God. In fact, some of the covenanters in the Presbyterian church were so serious about these covenants that they even cut their own hand with a knife and would draw blood and they would take a quill and they would stick it in their hand where there was blood and they would sign the covenant in their own blood showing their earnestness to keep this covenant. And you can read about this in, in history books, the National Covenant, and later they had the Solemn League and Covenant, so that God's people over time would enter into these, these covenants with God. Well, that's what we see going on here. Now, now that they, the king and the people are in agreement, and wouldn't you love to see that today? I mean, wouldn't you love to see an awakening and a revival where so many people begin to turn to the Lord that we have a, a public ceremony on the square and we, we pledge uh, to God and to one another that we will be God's people and, and we will live according to God's commandments. And, and we, we earnestly you know, put it in writing and sign our names to it. Um, that would be great. Um, so that's what the people are doing here. But there's more work to be done. Now that the people have entered into a covenant, now we have kind of the Reformation aspect of this covenant renewal. You see, revival is not just feeling emotionally affected. Uh, as I prayed in the pastoral prayer, in case you didn't know what that was referring to, that on Wednesday at Asbury University, which has had a history of having some awakenings in their past, had a chapel service like they normally do, uh, but the students after the chapel service stayed. And uh, apparently, the, the, you know, the, many were blessed by the service and they decided to stay and continue the service. And it's been going on for the last several days. Now, like I said, in the prayer, you know, we always have to judge according to the word and we have to judge also, you know, patiently with time to see the fruit uh, of what's going on. But it would be great if, if the spirit of the Lord really was moving students. Other campuses have heard about this, and now other campuses are, I'm hearing, are beginning to seek the Lord. They're beginning to have services, ongoing services. Um, but we have to realize that um, revival is not just a, an emotional catharsis, okay? It's not just working ourselves up into some kind of emotional frenzy where we get a fit of zeal, uh, but it it must always be followed with reformation if it is to be a genuine work of God. It, it must produce fruit of the Spirit, and it must produce repentance, and it must produce obedience to God's commandments. Not that the obedience to those commandments is the ground of our relationship with God. No, our relationship with God is always based upon the obedience of Christ for us. But if we love Jesus, we will follow his commandments. And so the reading of the Ten Commandments is something we ought to do in our day because this is God's will for our lives, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what the first four commandments are about, and love God, or excuse me, love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what the latter six are about. So Reformation must always follow 
a period of revival and renewal. And so let's look at our text here. I want to give you three points here about this Reformation. Number one, we see that they begin to destroy the idolatry. They begin to destroy the idolatry in verse 4. Number two, they begin to rid themselves of the false teachers and the false priests. That's in verse 5. And then finally, they begin to rid themselves of sexual immorality. Thirdly, they begin to rid themselves of sexual immorality. They destroy the idols. They rid themselves of false teachers and prophets and priests. And they conform their lives sexually to the Lord. So let's look at these uh, three points here. First of all, verse 4. The king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the doorkeepers, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. Now, as you may or may not know, Baal, Asherah, the host of heaven, these are other gods that were served by nations that were in the proximity to Israel. Okay, so the Sidonians, for example, to the north, they were worshipers of Baal. Remember Jezebel? Remember when, boys and girls, we talked about Jezebel? As we studied the book of Kings, where was Jezebel from? She was from Sidon and Tyre, right? And she brought with her, remember, it was a, a marriage of, that where she worshipped a foreign god and she then now was the queen of Israel in at least the ten northern tribes. So she tried to bring in Baal worship and that's where you get into Elijah, you know, and the whole contest between the living God and Elijah and Baal and the false prophets. You have the Asherah also. Those were kind of like large poles, like we might call them totem poles, where false worship would take place. Of course, the host of heaven, that meant that people were bowing down, boys and girls, to the creation. They were worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars. Now, the sun and the moon and the stars are, are good gifts from God. God made the sun. God made the moon. God made the stars. But you're not supposed to worship the sun, the moon, and the stars. Countries surrounding Israel did so. And so we are not supposed to worship the, the creation. We are supposed to worship the invisible living God, the God who was, is, and shall be forevermore, the God who made all these things. But the people had taken their cue from the other nations and began to serve and make sacrifices to all these idols here. So what uh, does the king do? Well, he takes out all the instruments of idolatry. He goes into the temple. Now, the temple, of course, is significant because of why? Well, because it points you to Jesus. The temple is a type of, of Christ, right? The, the, the temple is where the sacrifices take place. Well, who made the once and forever sacrifice? Well, Jesus did. The temple was where the word was preached, right? Well, who's the word? Jesus is the word of God. Uh, so the, the, the temple is where God's name dwelt. God dwelt in the Holy of Holies. Well, who is Jesus? Jesus is God incarnate. So Jesus is, was always to supplant the temple. But the temple was important because it, 
it, it pointed us to Christ. So by having all this idolatry all over the various courtyards and even in the inner court and in the inner rooms of the temple, what they were doing was they were giving a very false and distorted picture of Jesus. And they're basically saying what we hear so commonly said today, that there are many ways to God. You can go by way of what God's Jehovah says to do at this altar, or you can go to that altar over there and go to Baal and go to God through Baal, or you can go to that Asherah pole over there and you can go to God through that Asherah pole. And you see, it's the same thing that goes on today. People are out there saying, there are many different paths, you're all going up the same mountain. Well, that is not what the Bible says. Jesus has made it clear. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by him. Only through Jesus Christ we come to the Father. That was why it was so necessary that the temple be kept clean. Because what the temple was to do was supposed to teach all the nations everywhere that this is the true way to God. Remember, Jesus had that conversation in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. She said, we worship at this mountain and you Jews worship at your mountain. And Jesus said, essentially, we're right. The Jews are right. You're supposed to be worshiping in Jerusalem, not at this mountain. But he also then said what? But a time is coming when neither on this mountain nor that one shall you worship, but those who worship the Father shall do so in spirit and truth. That is, once Jesus finishes his work on the cross, he's saying to this woman, once I finish my work on the cross, once I atone for my people's sins, once I'm raised bodily from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures, once I'm seated at the right hand of the Father, then all from any tribe and tongue and nation may come to the Father, but only through me, because I am the greater temple. Tear down this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And John says he was speaking of his body. So that's why the temple must be cleansed. There has to be reformation. The idols have to be removed. And notice here how thorough this reformation is. Josiah is not content just to remove the idolatry. But notice what he does here. It says in verse 4, and he burned them outside Jerusalem. Now, ask yourself a question, boys and girls. Why was it not enough to take the Asherah pole and put it out on the curb for the garbage man to take away? Why did Josiah go that extra step? Because Josiah is trying to make a thorough work of this reformation. He wants it to be so thorough that the people of God not be tempted to bring it back again. You know, we are told at the end of Manasseh's life, Manasseh is his grandfather. Manasseh for most of his life was wicked. But at the very end of his life, we're told what? He repented and he began to put away the idolatry. But no sooner does Manasseh die and Ammon, who is Josiah's daddy, Ammon brings it all back. What did that tell Josiah? It told Josiah how quickly we can lose these gains that we're making in seasons of revival and reformation if we don't make thorough work of it. And so Josiah goes the extra step by burning it. Now, I think there's another interesting reason for this as well, and it has to do with the ashes. One commentator pointed this out, and I think it's very interesting. Why does he do it at the River Kidron? 
Well, you'll remember, what, what were you to do if a husband got suspicious that his wife was committing adultery on him, but he couldn't prove it? They were to offer sacrifices. They were to burn the, and take the ashes and do what? Throw it in water, and the woman was to drink the water. And what you have here is Josiah taking the ashes and he's having it thrown into the water supply. Some have suggested symbolically to say, drink out of the water supply and see if you've committed adultery. Because what happened? If the woman had committed adultery, her abdomen would swell. God would bring a judgment, a curse upon the adulterous woman. Well, who's the woman in this case? It's the, it's the nation of Israel. Who's the husband? It's Jehovah. And so some have speculated the reason he just didn't burn it and then leave the ashes, but he, that he took some of the ashes and he threw it into their water supply, daring the people to drink of it and see if you be an adulterer. Now other ashes, he did what? He took some of the ashes and he brought them elsewhere as well. And we're going to talk more about that next week, but we're going to see that he throws it onto those who violated the covenant. He's going to throw it on, the, on those who worshiped these gods. He's going to throw it on, the, he's going to defile the false place of worship in Bethel. Notice what it says here. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Now, why did he take ashes to Bethel? Because Bethel was the occasion of Israel's first sin. Remember after Solomon dies and you have the division between Rehoboam and Jeroboam and Rehoboam's in the south and Jeroboam has the 10 tribes in the north and Jeroboam's afraid he's going to lose political power if people keep going down to the south to worship at the temple. And so he says, hey, I got a great idea. I got a great political idea. Maybe his advisors came and said, hey, we got a great political idea. This is how you're going to get reelected, Jeroboam. You're going to make some calves, two golden calves. You can put one of them in Bethel. And you're going to tell your people, you don't need to go down to the temple anymore. You can serve God by going and worshiping and offering your sacrifice in front of these golden cows. And so what Josiah is doing here too is he's, he's making thorough work of the Reformation. Now, who is Josiah king of? He's king of Judah and Jerusalem. He's king of the tribes of, of the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. But he's doing what? He's going up to the people of God and he's witnessing to them, isn't he? And he's going to their false places of worship and he's, he's desecrating them. He's defiling them with ashes. So he's making a thorough work of this. Now, what should we take from this? Well, I think one thing we should do is, is to understand that if in, in a season of revival, we, there needs to be reformation in the church. And the idolatry needs to be dealt with in the church. Now, what is idolatry? Idolatry is where you give worship or service to someone other than the living God. Or as one pastor once put it many years ago to me, when you want something more than you want God, that's an idol in your life. If there's any person or anything you want more in life than you want the true and the living God, that needs to be burned up and the, and the ashes thrown in the river Kydron. It also means that there can be no pluralism in the church religiously. Now, ethnically, there should be a lot of pluralism, <laughs> right? Nationally, internationally, 
We know God is saving people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. But religiously, there is to be no pluralism. There is one true and living God. And only God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit should be worshipped. No saints are to be worshipped. No Mary is to be worshipped. Mary is a godly woman. Mary is in heaven. But Mary is not the mediator to Jesus. We don't pray to Mary. We don't pray to saints. All of that needs to be taken out. Get it out of the church. Now, I, would, I want to move on here to the second point. And, and that is here, in addition to beginning to remove the idolatry, they deal with the ministers, the priests here. Look at verse 5. He, that is Josiah, he did away with the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places. Remember the high places are those places. They might have been serving the living God, but God had never said, I want you to worship me in these places. So they appointed, So he, he removes the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places, in the cities of Judah, and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem. Also those who burned incense to Baal. So we're dealing with two types of priests here. Priests who are outright false priests, who don't serve the true and living God. They serve Baal or they serve some other god. And he's, but he's also dealing with the priests who served the true and the living God, but not what? In the right way. Who were serving the true God in the wrong place. And he's removing them. Now, I want to suggest to you that this too is, speaks to our situation today, especially in, in the West, in the, in the Western culture. Not only do false gods need to be removed from the church, but when revival comes by the Spirit of God, those ministers who do not repent and who preach a different gospel or another Jesus, other than the Jesus of the, of the Scriptures. They, too, need to be removed. Now, if, if we were to do my famous man-on-the-street interview again, and you took your camera and you began to fill your film your next TikTok video, and you said, you know, what are the greatest problems facing America? You'd get all kinds of answers, wouldn't you? Well, I, I think the, the greatest problem right now is there's corruption in government. I think the greatest problem right now is there's too much spending, too much debt. I think the greatest problem right now is education. I think the greatest problem right now is health care. I think, the, you know, and on and on and on it goes. Do you want to know what one of the greatest problems in America really is? It's the pulpit. It's the pastors in this country that are one of the greatest problems America has. If the pulpit would get right with God and the preaching would get right, a lot of these other things, I'm not saying they'd all take care of themselves, but a lot would be improved. And you're going to hear very few people tell you that answer. But that's the answer. You see, Josiah, one of the reasons he's such a great king is Josiah gets to the heart of the problem. The problem with so many conservatives in America is they get to the superficial fruits of the problem. 
They want to pick at this fruit and that fruit as the problem. Josiah gets to the root of the problem, and, and the root of the problem is the ministry in the, in the land. It's the pastors. How many pastors are unconverted in this country? How many pastors still yet do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ themselves? Because they don't know what the gospel really is. They think being a minister means just trying to get good people to do good things and tell people how moral they are. A lot of people do not really, especially in the mainline churches, um, they, the gospel has, has been as, as lost as the book in Josiah's day. And they come up with an entirely different Jesus. You know, we are, we are commemorating this year in 2023 the 100th anniversary of Jay Gresson Machen's book, Christianity and Liberalism, in which Machen said 100 years ago that liberal theology in mainline churches is an entirely different religion than biblical Christianity. It's not two versions of Christianity. It's not Christianity 1.0 and Christianity 2.0. What Machen said was that theological liberalism is an entirely different religion. He said, I wish that, almost, I'm paraphrasing, but I wish these people would be as honest as the Unitarians are and just admit they don't believe Jesus is fully God rather than to try and redefine what we mean by resurrection. You see, what liberals do is they take the, the orthodox terminology, but they gut it of any orthodox meaning. And so when the liberal minister says Jesus is divine, he doesn't mean that he's the eternal son of God come in the flesh. He means he's the highest expression of humanity. Uh, so that when uh, the liberal minister says that he celebrates resurrection at Easter, he doesn't mean that he believes that, or she, that, you know, that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead on the third day, according to the scriptures. No, resurrection is this new sense of, of, of realization that suddenly descended upon all the disciples in the upper room. That even though Jesus was gone, he's not really gone. And so they redefine everything. And, and you end up not with another type of Christianity, but it's not Christianity at all. And there are thousands of these churches in America. And if you've ever wondered, well, how is it that so many churches in our country just seem to go with whatever the popular ethic trend is in our country? Why is it that you can always count on certain churches to support homosexuality? Why is it you can always count on certain churches to get into whatever the latest ecological fad is out there? How is it that you can always count on certain churches and denominations to fall into that? It's because they rejected the gospel a hundred years ago. And you got to talk about something on Sunday up here. And so they talk about whatever is the latest thing. They are the Areopagus now. But they're not the Apostle Paul. They're just talking about whatever is the latest. I remember the frustration I felt, uh, and, and I couldn't articulate it until my roommate made this point. I, you, as you know, I went to a liberal Presbyterian college. And so here we are. We're, we're on the eve of our graduation. Now, at Davidson, before you graduate, the next morning, you go to one last chapel service. 
for the seniors. And you go in your robe and you sit. And you know what the sermon was on? This is the last opportunity to preach to people who are leaving school and going out into the world. And the guest minister, who then was president of Columbia Seminary, right up here in Atlanta, good, good little old liberal seminary, he preached on the environment. Your final words that you're going to send off the graduates with, hey, be kind to the environment. That's all they've got. Um, it, the, the, you know, the place... The church may not have Asherah poles and Baal and Buddha statues and all these other things in them, but believe me, from God's perspective, from the perspective of his omniscience, he sees idolatry throughout these churches. And so Machen was absolutely right. The problems we face today really often are subsequent problems because the church is no longer the church. The gospel is no longer being preached. And ministers themselves need to be saved. So what does Josiah do? He removes the false priests and the false teachers. And that is what needs to be done. We need a cleansing of our pulpits. We need a removal of so many teachers and preachers. They look like the lamb, but... John the Apostle says in the book of Revelation, they speak like the dragon. They wear a robe, they play the part, but what comes out of their mouth is not from the scriptures. De Tocqueville saw this, though he saw it differently in his day. De Tocqueville, if you ever remember De Tocqueville, he's the Frenchman who took a great tour of America and uh, wrote about his journey, and he wanted to know what makes America tick. And, and you know what Tocqueville said? He said, you know what the strength of America was? This is back in his day. He said the strength of America is her pulpits. What, what is it? Why is the pulpit so important? Because the pulpit is what, where we preach the word. This is where God speaks to his people through the word, by the spirit. And we know that God, by his grace, he, he brings life through the preaching of the word, people come to know who God is. Now that's not always pleasant because we realize God is holy and then we consequently realize we're sinners. And that's why we preach a savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ didn't come just to be a good teacher. Jesus Christ came to be a sacrifice, a substitute for sinners on the cross so that God could pour out his judgment and his wrath upon his innocent son for the sins that you and I have committed. Jesus would die for those sins. He would fully pay for those sins. He would be the propitiation for those sins so that our sins could be fully atoned, that any poor person who looks in faith to Jesus Christ may receive the forgiveness of God and the declaration that they are righteous in the sight of God, not because you and I are inherently righteous, but because Jesus' merit is given, transferred to the believer. And they are accepted on the basis, on the ground of what Jesus has done for them. That's the gospel. It is good news. The gospel is a pronouncement that God is reconciling sinners to himself and anyone who believes may be reconciled and brought into the family of God. It is not an exhortation, fundamentally. The gospel is the preaching of the good news. Now, there are exhortations that come with the gospel. Repent. And believe. 
But fundamentally, the message of the church is the preaching of what God has done for humanity in Jesus Christ. It is not living your best life now. It is not. Jesus is merely a good teacher and should be up there with the greatest of philosophers. No, my friend, he is the son of God come in the world to save sinners. That is what needs to be taught and preached to the people of God. The word is powerful. Psalm 19 tells us that the word of God is powerful. It causes the deer to calve. It splits the cedars of Lebanon. These are picturesque ways of describing how God uses the word to bring life to a sinner, to raise the dead, to give sight to the blind, to give ears to the deaf. It was said that John Knox could put more life into a congregation with a single sermon than, than 10,000 men blowing trumpets. <laughs> that is what is needed. And that's why Josiah said that if we're going to turn this thing around, we're going to have to deal with the pulpit and with the ministers and the priests. What did the, what did the idolaters throughout the Roman Empire say concerning the apostles? They're turning the world upside down. These people, they come into our community, they preach about this one true and living God, and suddenly half the town is casting their idols and their magic books into a pile to be burned. They cry out for salvation. What must I do to be saved? Well, i got to bring it to the third and final point. And that is, in addition to getting rid of the idolatry, getting rid of the false ministers, we needed to deal with the sexual immorality. Now, the sexual immorality was linked to the idolatry. You need to understand that. But I'm going to link it for us here today as well. So look at, look at verse 7. He, Josiah, also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes. Male homosexual prostitutes, which were... Listen, in the house of the Lord. Where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. Notice what the historian under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is telling you. He is saying that there is a connection between sexual immorality and idolatry. They go hand in hand. Now why? Well, it's a part of our perversity and our part of our depravity. The reason that they had these homosexual cult prostitutes in the confines of the temple was because they had these orgiastic rituals that were supposed to appease the fertility gods and would bring about blessings. But we know from the scriptures that this didn't bring life at all, but brings death. There is a real link between idolatry and sexual immorality. Sexual activity is one of the most powerful of, of, of human expressions. And that's why it, it is often linked to idolatry. Um, and so what we see here is this connection that as the people uh, refused the living and true God, God, in turn, gave them over to immorality. And we see this in Romans chapter 1. 
Just Romans chapter 1. Now, we've looked at this in times past, but just listen here with me. Paul says in Romans 1.20, since the creation of the world, his, that is God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. God made the sun, God made the moon, God made the constellations, and no, you're not supposed to worship them. You're supposed to learn that there is a true and living God. But, he goes on in verse 21, Paul says, though even though they knew God, that is in their conscience, because they're made in the image of God, even your most you know, self-dedicated atheist, he knows in his conscience that there is a God. They say they don't believe in God, but they do. They do. They do. The reason I know that is because that's what the Bible says. That's where you have to get your epistemology is what the scriptures say. They do believe in God. They do know he exists. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, and they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was what? Darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And listen to this. What happens? They get into idolatry. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds, four-footed animals, crawling creatures, etc. They turn from true religion to idolatry. They suppress the knowledge of God given to us in general revelation. And they begin, because they, remember, we're running from God just the way our first parents did in the garden. Adam, where are you? I'm hiding. Why? Did you eat of the tree I told you not to eat of? How do you know you're naked now? Man is still doing the same thing. Look, man is not looking for God. You know, Michael Horton said it many years ago. Man is seeking after God the way that a thief is looking for the police. And so they go and they say, well... I still want to be a religious person. I still want to be well thought of. So I'm going to make an idol and I'm going to worship the idol. And I'm going to pray to this idol. I'm going to bow down. Even though I know it's a wood carving, even though I know it's made out of gold, even though I, I chopped down this tree and with some of it I used for my firewood and I cooked my bread over it and the other piece I formed an idol, I'm still going to bow down to the idol. Even though I give them eyes, I know they can't see. Even though they have a mouth, they can't speak, but I'm going to bow down. And they, Paul says in verse 25, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And the reason America is having so many problems today is because we have exchanged the true and living God for a lie and have served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Then, it doesn't stop there. Here's what I want you to see. Then, having gone into idolatry, what happens? For this reason, says Paul, God gave them, who's the them, the idolaters, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. That is, they gave up the proper use of, of, of a woman, of a wife, for that which is unnatural, for that of a relationship with another man. In the same way, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts, homosexuality, and receiving in their persons the due penalty of their error. The other day I was reading in the news and I read about a hockey player who got himself into some hot water 
What, what did this hockey player do that was so awful? You want to know what he did? It was gay night or whatever at this city, and so the hockey team, in order to celebrate uh, Pride Day or whatever, was going to don the rainbow flag jersey. And this player, who I think came from Russia, was Eastern Orthodox, and he said, I can't do that. And so when all the other players came out skating in their pro-gay regalia, one hockey player didn't. And you would have thought he said, I'm a white supremacist. All the hate mail that came his way, all the awful comments that you could read in the thread about what a terrible guy this guy is. Now let me ask you something here. Why can't we go to a hockey game and not have to be confronted with the issue of homosexuality in our culture? Why do they have to throw it in our face? Why, why does a guy, kind of like Daniel's friend, say, no, I'm not bowing down to that graven image and get abused for it? Why can't he have his own view? Remember the day when the gays, homosexuals said, we just want to be accepted. That's not enough anymore. Now today, you will accept them or they're going to make your life miserable. Now why? Why is America so passionate about supporting homosexuality all of a sudden in the last few decades? It's because we've been given over by idolatry. Because of what Machen wrote about 100 years ago. The two are connected. You need to see that. The fundamental issues we're dealing with in our culture are religious in nature. That's what's at stake here. Are we going as a culture to serve God? Or are we going to serve another God and be given over to all the degrading passions that follow serving other gods? The culture war really is a religious war. The culture war, they are just these tactical battles that are taking place, but the bigger strategic fight is, is really behind the scenes. It's the powers and principalities that are at war. It is, it is, this, it is as old as Cain and Abel. And the reason Abel was killed and the reason that hockey player was abused for, was really for the same reason. Because the other side said, you will serve our idols. Cain, you see, Cain, it wasn't like Cain was just saying, well, you know, his heart wasn't right when he offered his sacrifice. No, his sacrifice itself was wrong. He was bringing from the fruit of the ground. He was supposed to bring blood. The problems we see today are as old as the fall itself. And the answer has to be as old as the garden itself. What was the answer when Adam and Eve sinned? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Believe on the promise. What is the answer today to our cultural problems? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman who has come into this world and has died for us that he might crush the head of Satan, that we might be delivered and that we might come to know the true and the living God and have eternal life. 
everything else leads to death. Broad is the path that leads to destruction. Only through Jesus Christ do we find life and have it eternal.